uh, it is wonderful to be uh, with you in front of you all again. Uh, as we're saying goodbye to Nathan, I am, or my family's about five days away from being here for a whole year, which uh, I hope that experience for you has been as good as it's been for me. Uh, and I apologize if it's not been, but uh, but today I'm tasked with uh, getting us into the book of Nehemiah. We've been in the book of Ezra for the last number of weeks, and I think this was, uh, I know Pastor Tom had to do all the names, but he gave me the the guy who just goes and does stuff. And so I'm hoping that I was able to put something together for us today that uh, can draw our, draw our heart closer to the Lord through this. Uh, but as I was thinking about this, I, I went home, and it's strange to me that this has happened, but the, the favorite movie of the Caldwell household right now is The Wizard of Oz. I don't know how that happened, because it's not mine at all, but every day that thing seems to be playing. And my wife would say, no, it's only the TV's only on when I'm home. It's not on the rest of the day, which I trust. Uh, I Probably something I need to work on, but... The Wizard of Oz, and if I, I don't want to play the spoiler for you if you've never seen this movie, but concussions are real. I don't know if you remember her getting smacked in the head in the very beginning of the movie, and the rest, whether it's literal or figurative, I can't figure out because it's in black and white for half the thing. But she goes to the land of Oz, meets some characters, and does everything she possibly can to get out of there. Her heart belongs in uh, her little farmhouse that has lots of animals, a bunch of goofy characters, no insulation. <laughs> and then she gets into the colored world with uh, lots of people and trees that throw apples and uh, all sorts of strange things. Uh, but she doesn't want to be there. She wants to get back to where she knows uh, her heart belongs. And I think that the book of Nehemiah, and as we follow it from the book of Ezra, uh, having that in mind, especially as Christians, in 2023, where do we belong? And how does the book of Nehemiah help us remember that? And so if we uh, can pray together, especially since my first point is on prayer, uh, so if I get long-winded, you know why. Uh, but if you'd pray with me, then we'll read the first chapter. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. I just want to thank you for all the things you've done in our lives, all the things that we can now look backwards on and see what you were doing, even in the most difficult of times. That as Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you. And the most pinnacle of that goodness, who is Jesus Christ, who came and lived perfectly and for some reason died for a sinful people who do nothing but run away like sheep. And he has nothing but joy and love for us. And not only did you do that, Lord, you sent the Spirit to live inside of us to curb our sin, to keep us from the things that we probably actually want to do and actually desire. And all the while, our minds wander 
and we uh, get into sin and muck, you spend all that time bringing us back. And I want to, uh, as a body this morning, bow before you as our good Lord, as our Father, as the one who allows us into the, king, the king's room and listens to us as though we're just little children and their daddies. You listen to us even though you're the king of the universe. And I thank you, Lord, for that. Help me with this book of Nehemiah this morning. Help us as our souls uh, are being fed by the word, even if my words are silly. Move in us this morning and draw us closer to you, Lord. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, would you read along with me? We're in, uh, of course, Nehemiah. We're right in chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm charged with both chapters, but it'd be just too long to read it all at once and you'd get bored because I'd get bored. So we're going to read chapter one and go through it and then we'll do chapter two as well. So chapter one, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And so today we find ourselves uh, 12 years into the future from the closing of the book of Ezra. One commentator said it's almost as if you're watching a documentary and you get a little scene and they stick 12 years later. We've just moved on, even though at one time these books were together. Nehemiah, this Jewish man who lived in this Persian empire, was serving as the king's cup bearer, just as he says at the end of the chapter. 
cupbearers being one of the most trusted men in the kingdom whose job it is to serve the drinks to the king. He was the person who made sure that the king or emperor was not being poisoned. And often what would happen is he would have to take a drink of the cup before the king would do so. And somehow this Jewish man got in this position. And then it seems like a close relative, if not his brother, Hanani, came and told Nehemiah of the status of Jerusalem, that whatever work that had been begun by Ezra on the walls and the gates at least have deteriorated if he touched them, and then the, that left the city unprotected. And that is the context, just a quick context, of what springs Nehemiah into action. And what is interesting to see is that when Nehemiah hears of the terrible things that are, is happening in the Lord's city, a city he's never seen before, a city he's only heard of, a city that he knows represents his God on this earth, we don't see Nehemiah jump out and buy a sword and a shield and start clanging it and raise an army and get everybody on horseback and race back to Jerusalem to be the man's man and do it all himself. Now what do we see him do? We see him bow his heart and pray to the Lord. I just want to read that again. The first thing that he does after weeping and mourning for days, he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. When I was thinking about that response. I was struck by how un-American that is, thinking about our, our context. And I was trying to think what perfectly encapsulates uh, the American response. And it made me think of my favorite movie series. And now that Avengers exists, maybe it's like my second, but pure American movie, Rocky Balboa. Now, I can't condone everything because we can't condone everything about anything, right? But I had that five DVD set growing up, and I watched those movies over and over and over. And something that always moved me were those workout montages. Do you know what I'm saying? Rocky Three may be one of my favorites. Rocky goes, he loses to Clubber Lang, he loses his manager, he then goes and get, finds Apollo Creed to help him train. And first thing Apollo Creed does is what? He chucks him into the pool. And his name's Rocky. So, I mean, he, there's a little foreshadowing there. I'm just full of spoilers if you've not seen these today. I'm sorry. And Rocky looks terrible. And one of the fa most famous scenes in all of the movies is this workout montage. And so for three minutes, it is action-packed. He's lifting weights. He's swimming. He's on the beach racing Apollo Creed. Full of the Rocky soundtracks that we all know. For three minutes, we watch Rocky Balboa exercise. <laughs> I went back and watched this just to see how strange it was watching this grown man work out to really great music. <laughs> so silly of a childhood. But that's, that is what America is to me or what we've been taught, that you tie your bootstraps up. 
You go out and make the money. You go out and don't rely on anyone else. You go out and do everything that you need to do. But Nehemiah does none of that. There's no training montage. There's no coach that shoves them into the water. There's no theme music to get everyone else excited. There's only a broken heart for the people of God and the believer who bows his heart to the Almighty Lord. That was all that Nehemiah needed to do in that moment of brokenness. This is where we see in Nehemiah chapter 1, he reminds God that he is the awesome covenant keeper and lover of his people. As it's written in Nehemiah verses 8 through 9, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts to the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And so now it's our job, and uh, I'm really excited about Pastor Tom's class coming up for how to read the Bible and apply it to our lives. It's our job now as 21st century Christians to look at the way that Nehemiah prays to the Lord in the face of stress and distress and put that into our lives through Christ. But we have to ask, what is prayer? Wayne Grudem defines prayer in three ways. This personal communication with God. That prayer emphasizes our need to trust God as we pray. That prayer brings us into deeper fellowship with God. And he loves us and delights in our fellowship with him. And that in prayer, God allows us as creatures to be involved in activities that are internally important. Prayer is quite a a unique grace given by God. The Lord didn't see fit to save his people and then cast them out and say good luck. He didn't leave them with no ability to reach the God who saved them. But the same way that we see Nehemiah bow his heart before God, confess the sins of himself and the church, and to remind God of his mercy over his people, we are to do the same. We have this direct line of communication to the Lord. And that we as a church, Springbrook Church, and any of you visiting need to be a people of prayer. The same way that small child depends on his parents to fulfill every single need is the posture of our hearts. This is the way God gave us to communicate with him. It's how Jesus conversed with the Father many times while on earth that we see first in Matthew 26 that he goes off into the garden before he's arrested and betrayed. Jesus knew that the most precious thing that he could do in the face of all evil was to go off and talk with God the Father. He didn't need a pump-up song. He didn't need to do a hundred burpees to get ready for the army that's coming. Jesus just needed to talk with his Father. The beauty of the doctrine of prayer, I think, is that God didn't leave us alone. Because Jesus made, uh, it's the perfect Jesus who intercedes for us as the perfectly heavenly priest who's welcoming us into the throne room that we may spiritually enter and be with the Lord and comforted about anything. It's a portrayal of, of the living gospel that God did not leave us to wander the earth alone, but he allows us to knock on his door and enter 
and ask him for what our soul needs most. And thinking about this specifically at Springbrook and, and hear what I think it looks like. There's a few different things. I know the elders are considering uh, possibly a twice a week prayer meeting where we can gather in the mornings and pray with one another through the scriptures to be encouraged in the middle of the week with one another, not just on Sundays. There's a weekly prayer meeting that meets on Sunday mornings where groups gathered to pray, to speak to God regarding the life of this church and the needs of the community that we live in. If you're looking for something on Sunday mornings before you come, come pray. Another way is through small groups here that meet during the, the week. Groups of few people, three to five people that gather, read the scriptures, pray through them, encourage one another, as Nehemiah does here, entering the throne room. And a final way that I think you should know is the elders gather and they name everyone by name who's struggling and needs prayer and they pray for them. They pray for you and beg God to have mercy on the people of this church and ask for the grace in the lives here at Springbrook. And I think that is how this chapter applies to us today. Without getting lost in the weeds of many different things, that Nehemiah had the confidence to beg God to move in his people in that day, to raise up Jerusalem, his church today should be coming also before the Lord in prayer. And I was thinking about this uh, in Psalm 50. Think of why. Why is prayer so important? Pastor Tom and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Why prayer to God is important for weary souls on this earth. I'll just start in verse 7. Hear, O my people, this is the Lord speaking, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. This is what I was uh, so impactful for me. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And I call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. There's something wholly unique about praying and speaking to someone who needs nothing. If you call mom or dad and say, I have this need, they've got needs. If you call a sibling in a time of need, they might not be able to help you at all times because they're in trouble too. But the, the Lord is a God with, a, with cattle on a thousand hills who will never be in debt, who will never be in loss, who will never be unreachable, and I think it is a, a, a sad day when a Christian tries to attempt to do things on their own like Rocky and not pray to the Lord who is always waiting and willing to help. Well, let's move on to chapter 2. Verse 
we'll read this and talk a little bit about the context. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. This was something that was not allowed in the context. You can't be sad in the presence of the king. Everything is happy slappy, okay? And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should uh, not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and will, when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, the Euphrates, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me all, uh, what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and I met a few, uh, and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also for the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab had heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we are his servants. Uh, we will arise and build, but you have no portion 
or right to or claim in Jerusalem. In our second chapter, we see Nehemiah asked the king if he may leave for Jerusalem in order to rebuild and secure the defenses of the city. And Artaxerxes allows him to go along with all the requests. Everything. He says, I need letters sealed and signed by you. I need captains and horsemen to make sure I can get across. I need your timber from your precious forests to rebuild this city. I need it all. And the king says, okay. We see him even leave at night to discover what work needs to be done so that he may organize the rebuild. And all of this he does because he's convinced that the Lord wants him to build up his kingdom, to rebuild it into security in order that it prospers. But as Christians today, I don't know if this is controversial or not, uh, we're not called to rebuild the temple today. That is not the, the kingdom that we are called to build. We're not called to go to the temple there because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not concerned about uh, building up the physical Jerusalem. Jesus has put a new calling on our life. We see that in Matthew 28. 18 through 20, where Jesus said, uh, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the earth, end of the age. But how do we do this? How can we be modern Nehemiahs that follow Christ's command in response to his gospel, saving us from our sins? The, king, the call isn't to rebuild the kingdom, but to go into our communities and speak the gospel and to preach the gospel. As Paul, Paul writes in Romans 10, 10, 14, How then will, will they, unbelievers, call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I was trying to think about this too. And something fun that I've always enjoyed doing is going to auctions. And there's something about a guy up there or a woman. I know there's women auctioneers too. Okay, so forgive me. But them just blazing away. It's almost as if they're just controlling your heart and making you bid on something even if you don't need it. I've got a great, a great set of post hole diggers. <laughs> it's missing a bolt, but I can get one of those at Menards. But you can probably guess, in all my uh, nine years of renting homes, how many uh, post holes I've needed to dig with that. There's less than one. <laughs> but even better now, is there's a, a, a company right down the road that you can just sit at home in the heat and just scroll through their pages of auctions. It's even better. Even better. And what happens at the very end is it starts counting down, and every time you put a bid on something, it pops back up to three minutes, and it'll just keep going and keep going and keep going. And, and eventually you just don't care about the thing anymore. You just want to beat the person who's bidding against you. But every time, because it's, it's generally, I can't say always, generally it is someone who has died 
and uh, someone doesn't know what to do with all their stuff, so they call the auction company. And it is striking to me that that right there, especially if they're an unbeliever, is the sum of their life and the way that they spent their money and the things that they've gathered. And yes, I'm sure they've had children, but I don't see that. I just see the auction, right? Okay. That the sum of their life is literally up to the highest bidder. And the person selling that is taking a 15% premium off of whatever that person is going to pay for it. And oftentimes it's not that great of stuff. It's a broken post hole digger or some 1950s car that maybe is worth a lot of money. I just don't know enough about it. And so the question that I pose to us today is, will the piles of belongings that you and I have and gather over the rest of our lives be the sum of our lives? When we have a great calling of the Great Commission, or... Will we beg the Lord that our hearts will yearn to live for God as Nehemiah did nearly 2,500 years ago? Will we be so moved and passionate about the Lord's kingdom and Jesus' command to go and make disciples that we will be moved to prayer with one another in our alone times to beg God to move in Langlade County? To create a revival of, of souls to be on fire for the Lord through the moving of the Spirit in response to the goodness of Jesus, will we take the first two chapters of Nehemiah, even though they're kind of strange to us, because we're not crying over Jerusalem, and we're not riding horses or whatever animal he's riding into Jerusalem to look at the walls. So how do we do this today? I think the Christian should, of course, be praying for that desire. That we should be praying for people to have open eyes. But that we are being strategic in the way that we live. Only you. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. But are we being strategic for the gospel so that we're being plugged into people's lives in the places that we gather? In the places that we work, live, and play. Those are the three big uh, pools that we call them. Have we purposely designed ways in which we are able to rub shoulders with unbelievers so that we may teach and preach the gospel to them so that they may be rescued from the depths of hell just as we were? Are we willing to do it? I think it's almost just like a thermometer on the wall in our hearts. And that only you in relationship with the Lord, is going to be able to read that. I'm not going to read it for you or tell you what to do or what you must do, but only ask you, are we rubbing shoulders with unbelievers so that they may be saved through the gospel? Because it's so easy for believers, and, and myself uh, especially, to only spend time with Christians. It's generally, it's easier, although we do stupid stuff th- to, uh, as well. We all agree on the same thing. They're not going to push back on who Jesus is. We don't have to worry about uh, if we're going to say the wrong thing when we're sharing the gospel. And I know it's hard to be with unbelievers, but are we placing ourselves because we're passionate about the kingdom of God? Are we placing ourselves with unbelievers and building relationships where we work, live, and play 
so that we may preach the gospel of Christ in response to his loving grace to us. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, I'm trying to land the plane here, so stick with me just a couple more minutes. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, where auctioneers don't come in and sell all your stuff. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart and your treasure is in heaven, I hope that nothing but gospel goodness and gospel relationships pour out of you in response to what Jesus has done for us. We certainly do not do that by buying perishable things through an auction site. I'm just holding up a mirror for that one. We build up treasures in heaven through being obedient to Jesus and telling everyone that will listen about the precious Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. That, wrapping a bow on it, is how I think Nehemiah 2 and 1 apply to the Christian today that through prayer and discussion with the Father, through the passionate building of the kingdom of God, through the preaching of the gospel, is how Christ would have us reflect the points of Nehemiah in chapters 1 and 2. That our connection to Nehemiah is prayer and begging the Lord to remember us and his people on this earth and being passionately uh, building his kingdom through the saving of his church and to be glorifying Jesus by the passionate participants of that. Let us pray and wrap this. Father, uh, it's so easy to be overwhelmed when discussing of shortcomings uh, in our relationship with you because that's all that it feels that we have. And I don't know if I'm trying to save a, a sermon that could come off as do and do, but certainly all things are in response to the things you have done in our life first. And all things that we do now, I hope, or we should move towards, is to do everything because you are so good and have been so good to us that we can do nothing but praise your name, sing your glories, and tell everyone else about you so that they may know you as well. And we not keep the lamp hidden here, but we set it up on the mountain so everybody could see. Jesus, I thank you for your death on the cross. I thank you for your willingness to go through where it says you, you were uh, bleeding, uh, sweating blood in while you were praying because you knew what was coming in the cup that you were to bear on the cross. And uh, just thank you for that and what you've done in our souls. And Holy Spirit, thank you for keeping us, thank you for teaching us and correcting us and keeping us from ruining ourselves and our marriages and our, our families and our finances. We thank you. Help us again this week. Help us uh, embody what you've taught us today and just help us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.